glad to be here this morning. First chance I've had to um, fill in for Matt here at Creekside, and got to acknowledge that uh, you know filling in for Matt Morton, those are big shoes to fill. Matt, when I have a Sunday off, which is rare that I'm not preaching, I love listening to Matt. You guys, I hope you know it. You're so blessed. Matt is such a, a great teacher. Uh, this morning, though, I'm going to continue in the series that we have uh, all been doing at all three campuses. We're going to talk about work is the subject from the book of Ecclesiastes. And I, I have to tell you, I actually, I really like to work. I didn't always like to work, but I like to work now. When I was a kid, I didn't like to work. I liked to play, right? I was kind of actually committed to play. My typical day was get home from school, drop off the books, and then play, right? Just play and play and play. I would play inside, play outside, play wherever I could. Normally, I would go down the street and uh, hang out with my friend Rusty Curry, and we would play whatever sport was in season. We'd play football or baseball or basketball or play street hockey or soccer or whatever. If Rusty wasn't around, then I'd just go outside and play by myself. I'd throw a ball up on the roof, and I'd catch it like for hours. Right? I'd just throw it up and catch it, throw it up and catch it. Or I'd go in the woods, and I'd shoot my bow. Or if it's bad weather, I'd go inside, and I'd take hockey pucks, and I'd shoot them against my dad's bench and just you know completely destroy it. Or I'd take the ping pong table, and I'd set it up like this you know, and kind of do Forrest Gump. I'd just for hours. Literally, I could just do that for hours playing. Worst part of the day was when my mom said, play is over, right? It was horrible to have to stop for dinner. It was a tragedy if I had to stop and work. Play good, work bad, right? But now I I enjoy work. Uh, But I would argue most Americans don't actually enjoy work. In fact, there was a study done recently, and in the study it was 52% of American workers described themselves as disengaged In other words, they were just going through the motions of work, but they didn't find any enjoyment or pleasure in their work. Another 18% regarded themselves as actively disengaged. That is, they hated their work and their workplace and the people that they were working with. In other words, for 70%, more or less, of American workers, work is a curse. Work's a curse. Or at best, it's just something you have to put up with. So which is it? Is is work a blessing or is work a curse? Uh, Well, I'm going to argue this morning that from a biblical perspective, uh, work is a blessing that sometimes can feel like a curse, right? But fundamentally, work is a blessing. And so I actually want us to start by going back to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll work our way up to Ecclesiastes. But in Genesis chapter 2 is where we first see work, and specifically, more specifically, work is a blessing, a blessing from God. So read with me in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and God sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had made and which God had created. Genesis chapter 2, we see that work is a blessing from God. In fact, uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 could be uh, labeled or titled like this, In the beginning, God worked. There are five distinct verbs that describe God's work in Genesis 1 and 2. Fifteen times God is described as working. God works and God loves to work. And then when God finishes his work, he stops and he celebrates his work, right? So he finishes one day and he looks at his work and he says, you know, that's really good. Each day he stops and says, that's good, that's good, that's good. When he finishes all six days, he stops and he rests 
for an entire day, not because he's tired or because all work is completed, but he stops to celebrate the fruit of his labor. And the pinnacle of God's labor or God's efforts is the creation of man. I want you to read with me in chapter Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every moving thing that moves on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in the beginning, God worked. In the beginning, God loved to work. In the beginning, God celebrated his work and rejoiced. In the beginning, man worked. God created man so that man would also work. God created man as the pinnacle of his creation, and then God commissioned man to work alongside of him. So mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. The pinnacle of the pinnacle is actually Eve, right? The most beautiful thing that God had yet created. And why did God create Eve? Adam was lonely. Well, certainly Adam was experiencing some sense of void. There wasn't another one like him among all the animals. But he did have God to talk to, right? That couldn't have been all bad. <laughs> He's got God to walk in the garden with and talk and commune and fellowship. Right? The text tells us actually that God created Eve alongside of Adam because Adam had this huge task to do and he couldn't do it by himself. He needed a helper, a companion, a co-worker. In fact, that word for helper is later used of God himself. That is, God works and then God calls man to work alongside of him and he gives woman to work alongside of man and then God works alongside of both of them. In the beginning, God was a worker who loved to work and he loved to stop and to celebrate his work. That's the nature of who God is. So when we work, it is, in a sense, an act of worship. Because you'll notice, in the garden, we don't see them stopping and a praise band comes out and they sing songs and raise their hands and celebrate and worship like that, do they? No. The work is the worship. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, it says this, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever your work is, whether your work is in the home or outside of the home, whether your work is for pay or not for pay, whether your work is volunteer, no matter what your work is, whether it's gardening as Adam and Eve or accounting or engineering or law, it can be done as an act of worship. Work is a blessing from God with which we honor God and worship God. Now read with me again chapter 1 verse 27. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So when we work, we worship God. God is blessed. But when we work, we're blessed because we are fulfilling God's design for us. To be made in the image of God means, among other things, that we were designed to work. If you're interested in exploring this topic further, great book written by a man named Tom Nelson, called Work Matters. In it, he said this. Being made in God's image, we have been designed to work. To be fellow workers with God, to be an image bearer, is to be a worker. In our work, we are to show off God's excellence, creativity, and glory to the world. 
we work because we bear the image of one who works. I would say we work because we bear the image of one who loves to work. God is a worker and he made us in his image. Now, this is very different from most of the worldviews in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the worldview was this. The gods existed apart from work. They didn't work. In fact, they created men and women to work for them. Men and women would, would till the ground, bring forth the produce, and bring food and drink to the gods so that the gods didn't have to work. So the highest ideal, in a sense, for a man or a woman was to get to the point that they didn't have to work. Okay? They could be like the gods, not working. So kings and rulers were often, in the worldview of the ancient world, understood as gods themselves. They were under no obligation to work. So Pharaoh was a god, god on earth. He didn't have to work, no obligation. When he died, he would ask to accumulate all of his wealth and put it in the tomb with him so that he could take it with him to the next world. Why? so that he wouldn't have to work, right? That's the ancient worldview. The Jews introduced, through God's revelation to them, an entirely different worldview, and it is this. God works, and God loves to work, and so the creatures made in his image aren't his slaves to bring the produce of the earth to him. They are co-workers with God. They're co-workers with God. That's what it means to be actually in the image of God. So turn with me now to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and verse 24. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. It says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. In other words, God works and then God stops and he rests, not because he's tired, not because the work is done, but because he's celebrating the fruit of his hands. And God tells us, you do the same. You work because I work. You stop and rest because I rest. And when you stop and rest, what you're doing is worshiping. Worshiping through your work, and then you're stopping and you're worshiping when you rest because you're acknowledging that everything that you have is from the hand of God. And with it, your work, and with your rest, you're blessing God, and you're fulfilling God's image in you. So what that means is the ideal for mankind is not to work and work and work and get to the point where you never have to work again. In fact, if you don't have any work that is blessing God and blessing others, there will be a void in your life because you're in the image of God. And God is a worker who loves to work. So, first, your work is a blessing from God. Second, your work blesses family and friends. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 7. It says, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Solomon despises this man who just works and works and works and works, and he never stops and thinks about, why am I working? 
I'm not stopping to enjoy the fruit of my labor, nor is my labor a blessing to others. And so he contrasts that man in verse 9 with two. Two who are better than one. Why? Because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Now, I acknowledge that uh, some of you have used this verse as a marriage verse, right? Maybe, maybe even the pastor preached from this passage when you got married, or maybe someone was generous and they crocheted a, a little thing and you've got it above the door of your bedroom. It's kind of, maybe it's your marriage life verse, but I got to tell you, this, these verses are actually not about marriage. They're about work. You can apply it to your marriage, but what it's about is work. Notice again verse 9. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. And what he's talking about is a contrast between the one who works and works and works, but not with and for those he loves, with those who work and work and work, but they work with those that they love and for those that they love. They have a good return on their labor. Right? They enjoy the blessing and the fruit of the return of the work that they have done. So that's the second point. Your work blesses family and friends. Third, your work blesses the needy. Acts chapter 20, Apostle Paul was speaking with the Ephesian elders, and he told them this. He said, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus came into the world. How did he come in? Not as a a prince or king or a statesman. He came in as what? A worker, right? A man who worked with his hands. And I expect the quality of Jesus' work was pretty amazing. Jesus came in to work, and he came in to use his work to be a blessing for others. In fact, he said of himself, my father's working until now, and I am working until now. Why did I come onto the earth? I came to fulfill the work that he sent me to do. Jesus worked, and he worked to be a blessing to those who are in need. I think one of the greatest illustrations of this is Joseph. Remember, Joseph worked in in a very pagan environment, right? He didn't have any Christian co-workers, did he? Because there were no Christians back then, right? But he didn't even probably even have any Yahweh worshipers working alongside him in the government of Egypt. And yet he used his, his skill, his intelligence, his administrative ability, his leadership ability, and also the fact that he was listening to the voice of God to bless the entire nation of Egypt physically. In fact, to keep people alive. Surrounding nations were kept alive because of Joseph's work. Joseph's family was kept alive because of Joseph's work. So when we work, God allows us to take from the fruit of our labor and to share and to bless those who are in need. Fourth, your work blesses your co-workers. So unlike Joseph, many of you probably have Christian co-workers, but I would guess that some of your Christian co-workers don't have a great attitude toward work either. Right? They probably don't come in every day, Monday morning, saying, thank God it's Monday, right? Awesome, I'm glad, I'm glad I get to start a new work week. I love my boss, I love my tasks, I love my co-workers, right? Even for Christians, American pastime and work is complain, 
right? Complain, complain about the work you got to do, complain about the boss, complain about the coworkers, complain about the salary, complain. So you can come in and you can bless your Christian coworkers because you bring an attitude that work is an opportunity to worship. Right? Worship is a, a blessing to God because it fulfills your design. Work is an opportunity to bless your coworkers by showing them a Christian perspective on work. Use the work to bless those around you. Christian coworkers, non-Christian coworkers, maybe you get a chance to stop and to share the gospel with your coworkers. Maybe they want to start a Bible study with you. I would encourage you strongly, if you have opportunity, take opportunity to share Jesus. But there are a lot of other ways besides actually sharing the gospel that you can demonstrate a Christian worldview. In fact, I would argue that if you are getting paid by your employer and you're on your employer's time, but you're pulling aside into the break room or a little corner room back on the docks or whatever, and you're having Bible study while you're getting paid to work, you're stealing from your employer and not providing a Christian worldview. But a Christian worldview means you go into the workplace and you respect everyone because they're made in the image of God. And you do good to them and you help them rise. You help them succeed rather than using them for your own success. You show honor and respect to authority because all authority is from God, even when you disagree with the authority. Okay, you're, you're providing them a Christian worldview of work when you're not complaining and you're not moaning and you're not whining, but you're doing your work with a transcendent view as unto the Lord, as unto worshiping the Lord. Okay, that's a blessing. I think Daniel is a wonderful illustration of this. Again, no Christian co-workers, right? Daniel works for a thoroughly pagan government. But because Daniel is excellent at his work, everyone is blessed. Right? Daniel studies hard as a youth to learn a new language, a new culture, new skills. And then he takes those and he rises in the government of Persia and later the Medes because of the skill with which he exercises his God-given abilities. And that's a blessing. Remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad was looking for a mechanic to get his car repaired, and he made this statement to me. He said, you know, son, I would rather find a competent mechanic than a Christian mechanic. I want to find somebody who knows how to work on the car, because he had gone to a mechanic who was a Christian, but he wasn't competent and he wasn't honest. And how much better to be a Christian who is competent in their work, and as a result, blesses Christians in the workplace, non-Christians in the workplace, right? Everyone is blessed. Another book I would recommend to you is called Every Good Endeavor. Endeavor. It's by Timothy Keller. He said this, To be a Christian in business then means much more than just being honest or not sleeping with your coworkers. But that's a good place to start. Anyway, uh, it even means more than personal evangelism or holding a Bible study at the office. Rather, it means thinking out the implications of the gospel worldview and God's purposes for your whole work life and for the whole organization under your influence, no matter what you do. I love this quote from Martin Luther. He once said, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. That's good, isn't it? God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. God doesn't need our good works. Why? Well, because Luther was uh, uh, one of the first Protestants, right? He's a reformer. And what he argued throughout his life was, we don't earn God's favor, so that he has a debt to us to remove our sins and give us eternal life. In fact, that's just a gift. You can't earn it, so stop trying to earn it. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace you are saved through faith, 
that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If we don't hold God in our debt, he gives us eternal life freely through his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus worked and did his task completely and perfectly, we don't have to work to earn God's favor, right? But then God saves us and he gives us eternal life freely. Why? So that we can work and be a blessing to others. That's Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his, what? Workmanship, right? Remember the pinnacle of God's creation. God says, it is good. You know, the plants and the animals and the trees, it's good, it is good, it is good. Then he makes men and women, what does he say? Now that's really good. We are his workmanship. God's pride and joy of all that he, he created. He says, we are his workmanship, the craftsmanship of God, created or recreated, renewed in Christ Jesus for good works. And not saved from good works, but saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, God, in his mind and in his heart, imagined who you would be and what you would be as, as a unique creature in his image, that he would rescue and redeem through the death of his son Jesus, and then would go, you would go on to, to do these works that God had laid out ahead of you that would be worship to God and a blessing to everyone around you. So what that means is it really doesn't matter so much what your work is, but why are you doing your work? Okay? This is really important. It doesn't matter so much what you're doing in your work, but why are you doing it? So there are sacred, right, sacred tasks that can be sin. A preacher can stand up on a Sunday morning, and the reason he preaches is so that people will know his voice and know his name, and he can make money. That's sin. Right? On the other hand, Adam and Eve were just gardening. Right? They were tending an orchard. Jesus was making things with his hands. But the work was for the purpose of bringing honor and glory to God and blessing to others. So it doesn't matter so much what you do, but why you do it. In fact, that's really the key, is our attitude and our perspective about work. Work is fundamentally a blessing. Now, here's the big uh, however. However, work can come to feel like a curse. I want you to turn with me now to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In verse 17, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17, Solomon says in one of his darker moments, So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labor, labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, which, for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to the one who has not labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. This too is vanity. It is a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Remember, this is Solomon who wrote. Solomon who was arguably the wealthiest man who had lived to that point in time. Actually, probably a man who in his day had unlimited financial resources, right? Anything 
that he could want to buy, he had the ability to buy. Unlimited financial resources. He had accomplishments. He wrote psalms and proverbs and expressed such phenomenal wisdom that even the rulers from the surrounding nations had to come and sit at Solomon's feet and say, just tell us some of that wisdom. Share that wisdom. And if on any given day his wife wasn't really impressed with his wisdom, he could just say, next, right? He just go down the hallway 300 times, 300 wives, right? 300 wives, 700 concubines. He had the nicest house on the block. Maybe the nicest house in all the kingdoms surrounding him. All kinds of accomplishments in the things that he built, the wisdom that he wrote, peace with all his neighbors. Nobody wanted to mess with Solomon of all the nations around him. And yet, as Solomon looked out on all of the labor of his hand, he said, it's just, it just feels like futility. It just feels like futility. Why? Well, let me read to you again from the book of Genesis Chapter 3, verse 17. Then to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, work is not the curse, but work is under the curse. Remember, work was given to man as a gift in Genesis 1 and 2, before the curse came in. Work is not the curse, but when the curse came, the curse descended upon absolutely every human experience. Work is not the curse, but work is under the curse. And so, as Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, there are some things that are bent that just can't be straightened. Again, quoting from Keller, he says, Sin runs through the heart of every worker and the culture of every enterprise. So every person who works there and the culture of the place is affected by sin. It doesn't mean that it's all bad, but it's affected by the curse. And that causes our experience of work at times to be frustrating and less than fulfilling. So how does this work out in our lives? Well, let me, let me trace this for you. I think for many of us, we begin our work life as romantics. And this is what I mean by that. We begin our work life as romantics. Uh, we, we believe that um, when we graduate from college, we will we'll find the perfect job that is satisfying and fulfilling every day. We love all of our coworkers, and our work will actually change the world forever, right? That's what I mean. There's a sense of romanticism, and I've, I've worked with many students, actually, who get paralyzed in the job search process because they're looking for that first job to be a perfect job, not just at the end of their career, but that very first job, right? It's going to be perfect, and I'm going to change the world through it. And then what we discover slowly is, actually, the results are difficult to come by, and the results don't seem to last. Read with me again Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Solomon says, look, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to work wisely and I will leave behind this wonderful fruit of my labor, but the person who picks it up after me might be an idiot, right? And it's, it's all squandered. It's all gone. It, it doesn't last, right? It doesn't last. And I have to say to myself, what's the point? Because 
There is actually nothing new under the sun. The only reason it feels new, as he says in chapter 1, is because we forgot what came before. So my greatest idea even will be forgotten. My greatest contribution will be forgotten. I loved uh, Matt's illustration he told me he used when he was talking about Ecclesiastes chapter 1 of, of shredding the documents, right? The patents sitting in the patent office. And I mean, man, what a wonderful illustration of futility, right? Somebody's dream, their vision of how they will change the world and get rich. And a high school kid is running it through a shredder. Could there be a more graphic illustration of that? That is labor under the sun that just doesn't seem to last or we wonder what is the point we start as romantics, we get to this point where we say, why bother, right? Why bother? And then we become cynics. Okay, not, not realists, but cynics. We lose sight of a vision that work can be an act of worship and work can be a way we bless others around us. Work can be in some, at some level fulfilling for us. Instead, we become cynics and we say, well, what's the point? I need to work to not work. I'm going to work for the weekend. I'm going to work for vacation. I'm going to work for retirement. I'm going to work so I don't have to work. We become cynics. Not realists. Realists, I would say, understand it's a broken, fallen world. And not all work will always be fulfilling all of the time. And that's okay. That's just reality, right? That's reality. I'm going to read to you again Genesis chapter 3, the fall, and describe... Uh, reality for us, right? Every area of life that should be most fulfilling for us will be a struggle. Genesis 3, verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. The first thing that happens immediately after Adam and Eve's sin is that there is frustration and alienation and conflict in their marriage. They feel vulnerable They don't feel safe with one another. And marriage, which was designed to be the most fulfilling relationship that they would have, all of a sudden there's conflict. And I got to tell you, if you're here this morning and you're not married, you get married someday, and probably maybe at some point you might have a fight with your spouse. It it could happen, right? Why? Genesis chapter 3. Marriage is a wonderful gift. That's a fact. But it's still under the curse because you have two people who are broken and fallen, living in such close proximity, and they will have conflict. Is it still a gift? Yes. Will it work perfectly every moment of every day? No, it won't. It won't. Work is hard. Marriage is hard. Childbirth is hard. You see all these in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, actually verse 16, says to the woman, he said, I will greatly, and not a little, not some, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You know, in almost every language, the, the, the word for that process of childbirth is labor, right? Labor. In pain you will bring forth children. So marriage can be hard. It's a great gift. should be really super fulfilling, but it's going to be hard. Childbirth, very fulfilling, but you know what? It's going to be real hard, real painful. At least that's what I'm told. I'm told it's a pretty painful process. I, I, I've seen it. It looked painful. Um, but I did my part, right? I did my part. I, I, uh, I took the classes and I learned how to breathe. And so, you know, I'm standing holding Tristy's hand and she says, squeeze my hand hard. So I squeeze it hard and I, 
you know, and I had my, my labor down. I did my part of labor, and I'm, you know, and then when that wasn't really helping as much any longer, I got to confess, I got hungry. You know, I was hungry because I'd been working hard too, right? I mean, labor started, I don't know, middle of the night sometime. I mean, we've been going, we, right, because we get pregnant and we have a kid, whatever, right? So we'd been working on it. And it was, you know, gosh, man, middle of the afternoon or something. We'd been going since the middle of the night. I hadn't eaten anything. And my mother-in-law brought me a Subway sandwich because my mother-in-law loves me. She thinks I'm a saint. I'm awesome, right? So she brings me a sandwich. So I just stepped to the side of the room and I got out my Subway and I just started eating. I'm eating my sandwich. And all of a sudden, my wife looks at me and she goes, stop crunching. Because I had lettuce on my sandwich. And I guess I was, so I just set my sandwich down and I stood there and she said, Take your hands out of your pockets and do something. So I went like that. I don't know. You know, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. This is hard for you. I don't know. Right? Marriage is hard. It's a challenge. It's a blessing. It's a gift, but it doesn't work perfectly. Childbirth, hard. Pain. No, lots of pain. Very painful. Very painful. Work. Adam, you're going to work. You're going to go out every day to work. And you know what? You're going to try to bring forth the fruit of the earth And alongside some fruit, you're going to get lots of thorns and lots of thistles. These things that should be most fulfilling that you were designed for are under the curse. And what can happen is we become cynics and we lose sight of a vision that work is worship. And work can be a blessing. Just because work is imperfect in a broken and fallen world. Another part of the process is for some of us, we become worshipers. Okay, worshipers, I would argue, not of, not of work itself, but from what we can get from work. In other words, it's not that we just love work itself, but work can provide status. It can provide uh, money, goods that we can find value in, or it can provide security, huge bank account, retirement account. It can provide these things that we say, that's where life is found, so I will put up with work and I'll 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 work because so I can get these things that can make my life meaningful. The Tower of Babel is a great illustration of that. God created man in his image and he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and act like me. Right? Act like me. Go out and work and bring order to the chaos. And as you're doing that, you will reflect the very nature of God. You will make my name great by working everywhere. Instead, mankind said, nope. We're not going to scatter. We're going to come together. Because if we come together, we can make our name great. Before, all we could do was stack rocks, stones a little way up because they're all irregular. But with technology, we've discovered how to form bricks and make them all uniform and burn them so they're not susceptible to flood. So we can build higher and higher and higher. We won't be vulnerable to God coming in again. And what we'll do in the process is we will make a name or ourselves, get our name, and we'll do it through our work for ourselves, not for God. And then work becomes the means of self-fulfillment, right? When you meet someone, what's the first thing that you ask that person normally? What, what do you do for work? What's your job? Right? Because your job in this culture defines you, defines your value. Find your value relative to other people. What do you do for work? What do you do for work? It's the first question we ask. But biblically, what defines us is that we're made in the image of God. 
And what matters is not what we do, but why we do it. But we believe the world, and so we worship through our work. We worship through our work. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 7. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is never satisfied. That is, you just can't build a tower high enough, and if you do build it really high, you know what? It's going to crumble, or the next generation will forget who built it, and it will not satisfy. Fourth, we remain unreflective. Okay, we don't stop and say to ourselves, so why are we working and working and working, and what are we actually expecting from work? Do we really think that if we work a little bit harder, a little bit longer, that our lives will have meaning, that we can define ourselves through what we do? Solomon despises that man who just works and works and works and works and doesn't just stop and think about work for a while. Think about why you work rather than working constantly, constantly, and not reflecting. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 22. For what does a man get in all his labor and in all his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because All his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not stop to rest. This too is vanity or futility. Catherine Alsdorf was uh, the woman who helped Timothy Keller write his book, and she said this, I couldn't handle the idea that it was all meaningless, so I just put my head down and I worked harder. (laughs) How many of us do that? So we don't stop and think do we have really a biblical perspective on work? So what I want you to do this week is I want to challenge you to think about work. I want you to take a moment where you stop working and you think about your attitude toward work and how you work and see if God can't transform that and bring meaning back to work for you. And so four things I want you to think about this week regarding the blessing that work really is. First is this, God works and he made us to work. This is the foundation really. It is in the nature of God. God loves to work. God's a worker who loves to work. He's creative. He's intelligent. He's competent. He makes beautiful things. He loves to work. And he made you in his image. And so when you don't work at all, right, or when you hate your work, there's something going to be missing in you that's really a part of your your fundamental being, being made in the image of God. You were made to work. Second, God rested and he made us to rest. God didn't rest. Remember? Because he was tired. He didn't rest because the job was done. He rested to celebrate. And he made it that we have to stop and rest, not to escape work, but we should stop to rest to enjoy the fruit of our labor. So I got to ask you, when does your day begin? And when does your day begin? You know, alarm goes off at 6 or alarm goes off at 6.30 or whatever. Some of you, you don't even have to set an alarm because your mind's not resting anyway. Four in the morning, bam, you're up. You're going, 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 right? But for all of you, your day begins when you start working, right? That's how it starts. Even if you've shifted your clock and you do night shifts, your day begins when you work. You know, in the Hebrew mindset, the day actually begins when the person goes to sleep, right? Genesis 1 and 2. There was evening and there was morning the first day. The day started when man went to sleep. Because when man went to sleep... God was working. And then when man woke up, 
He was just entering into the work that God had already been doing. And we can rest because we know God is working. That allows our heart, our mind, our body to rest peacefully because God doesn't have to rest. God doesn't get tired. So God is working. and He's working all the time. and He's working on your behalf to bless you. So when you wake up in the morning, God is already at work. He's already mapping out those good works prepared beforehand. And you step into the work that God has done. But you have to stop and rest to have the strength and the energy and the perspective to see work as God sees it. Third, the fall made work and rest less than perfectly fulfilling. That's reality. you got to get comfortable with reality. Solomon said, some things are bent and they cannot, <coughs> cannot be straightened. All of earth is under a curse. So, make your work all that your work can be. And take work as it is. You know, uh, last year, I uh, stopped and I met our uh, trash guy who picks up our trash. And he's a, he's a big, super burly dude. He's got a ZZ Top beard coming down. I mean, he's a really big, tough guy. But the, gentle and joyful. Right? And every time that I get a chance, I stop and, and I talk with him. In one conversation, uh, I was talking to him just about his job, and he said, you know what, I've worked as a plumber, and I've worked as a carpenter, and I've done construction repair, and electrician, he said, I have all, all these skills, but you know what, I have found my calling. I go, okay. So I have found my calling, because I love to serve people in this way, and I love to, to uh, be joyful with them and for them. I was like, okay, literally, your job stinks, Right? But you sense a calling in it. Why? Because it's as unto the Lord. I've never seen him when he isn't joyful and cheerful doing his job. Is it perfect? Oh my, no. Right? But it's an opportunity. Right? It's an opportunity. So it's not what you do, but why you do it. On the other hand, work and rest will be fulfilling forever in the kingdom of God. Because we were made to work. Right? So the ultimate vision of the kingdom of God is not getting your own cloud and your own harp and sitting there doing nothing forever. Oh my gosh, what a horrible vision of eternity that is, right? To be completely unproductive forever. That's not, that's not what the kingdom of God is like. In fact, the kingdom of God is this. There's a, a, a new city, a civilization, New Jerusalem, God, a city that God has made, that God has crafted. It's amazing and it's beautiful and it descends down onto earth that has been renewed, new heavens, new earth, beautiful creation. As the city descends, people who are living in the new heavens and the new earth, who are no longer battling a cursed earth, they bring the fruit of their labor into the new city as an act of worship to God. Their gold, their silver, the produce of the land, produce of their hands, that is an act of worship. And so they worship and they work and they rest, and that is eternity in the kingdom of God. That is you as God has designed you to be finding work that is, in fact, always fulfilling. A job that you absolutely love every minute. Coworkers that you love and enjoy all the time. Working together to produce good for others and worship for God. And now, we live on an earth that's cursed and we get glimpses of that, right? We get moments of that. And God says, when you have those moments, stop and celebrate all that you have is a gift from me. Your bodies, your mind, your spirit, 
all that you can produce. Stop and use that as an act of worship. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this week we would stop working, even for a few minutes, and we would think about work. We would think about what's true about work, and you would refresh and restore our perspective on work. Thank you, Father, that we can do that because Jesus did his work, and he did it perfectly, completely. And we don't have to work to earn your favor. Instead, we rest in the fact that we have your favor through the work of your son, Jesus. And then we can get up and we can work alongside you and we can, we, can, we can demonstrate your creativity and your wisdom and your intelligence as well as your love for men and women made in your image and we can bless them and draw them to your son, Jesus. I pray, Father, you would refresh and restore our vision of work. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.